take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27 today. That sounds a little strange because the last four weeks I've said verse 21 through 26. But we have uh, wrapped up those four weeks in specifically talking about worship coming out of what our Lord said to the woman of Samaria when he said those who worship God, worship the Father, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we kind of unpacked a little bit what worship is and what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And today we want to move on to more of this account there in Samaria that our Lord had not only with the woman at the well, the Samarian woman, but also with the people, the men of Samaria who came out to see him after she went back into town. And we'll probably be here a couple of weeks also. But I want you to hear a little bit about this today and a little bit of what Jesus says about his food is. The title of the sermon is, is simply, you know, what is your food and is it the same as Jesus' food? Is your food the same thing that his is? Is what is priority to you, what is life giving to you, what is life important to you, the same thing that was for him? Now, he was the son of God. He was God incarnate. And yet he said, this is what my food is. This is what I, I live for. And I would ask each of us to examine today whether we are living for the right things or not as we look at this encounter uh, a little bit further, a little bit deeper. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 27, and I'll read down through verse 42. At this point, his disciples came. Remember, they had been into town to buy food. That's why he was there alone uh, with the woman at the well. His disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And yet no one said to her, what do you want, or what do you seek? Or to him, why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Meanwhile, they went, excuse me, they went out of the city and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for, the, for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the Word of God. You know, John in this gospel, as we talked about months ago in the very first sermon, 
is building for us, if you will, an evangelistic track. He's talking about who Christ is, what He's all about, what He has done, and He says to the end of this book, I'm writing these things that you might believe that He is who He said He is. He, he's building an evangelistic case. He started out in chapter 1 by saying that He is the light of the world. In Him is the light of men. He has come into the world to shed light, and yet the light kind of kind of shone in a dark world because the world was dark and the world was blind. And, and through the last three and a half chapters, John has carefully taken the words of Jesus and taken the accounts that uh, uh, encounters that Jesus had, he has shown us just how deep our blindness really is. If you remember back in chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus said, talking to the people around him, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Totally misunderstanding what he's talking about. They were looking with physical eyes at a physical building. He was talking about the temple of his body and the resurrection that would come after they had destroyed that temple. He was beginning to impart to them spiritual truth, and yet they could only think in the physical. They were blinded to spiritual truth. Or John 3, 3, when he encounters Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, the Pharisee, he, he says to Jesus, well, what do you mean? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb a second time? How can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Nicodemus, a spiritual teacher, a religious teacher, could not perceive, could not see because of his spiritual blindness the truth of spiritual rebirth. He was concerned about the physical side of it, not the living spirit that would enable him to have new life. Or in John 4.10, that we've looked at over the past several weeks, the encounter of the woman at the well, when Jesus says to her, uh, you know, would you give me a drink? And, and she talks to him, why are you asking me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a Jewish man. And he said, you know, if you knew the water that I had, if you knew the living water that I had, you would ask of me and I would give you a drink. And she said, what are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me water to drink when you don't have anything to draw from? You don't have any way to get water. I'm the one with the water pots, not you. She missed altogether the concept of living water, spiritual water. And then in this passage we look at today, you see even the blindness of the disciples. In verses 31 and 32, when, when they come back from the city after having bought the food that they went to get because they were traveling and they didn't have food with them, and they went into that city and they came back and they said, now that all this, this woman has gone, this kind of had them a little confused. See, they, they say, here, Rabbi, here, teacher, here, Jesus, eat, we've brought you food. And Jesus says, I've got food that you don't know anything about. And they look at each other and they look at him. And you can almost imagine the perplexed look, especially on somebody like Peter's face, who has all the answers all the time. And, and he looks around, he said, did somebody bring him something to eat and not tell us about it? Lord, has somebody snuck out here while we were gone and brought you something to eat, and now all this work we've done to go get it is not even needed anymore? I mean, there's almost a little bit of humor there. Don't you think when they, they look around and they say, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Did he? There's a perplexity, there's a blindness, there's still 
even in these men who have left everything, left their fishing nets, left their, left their businesses, left what they did for livelihood to follow him, there's still an element, there's still a dimension of spiritual blindness that is there. And Jesus, in all of his encounters, is one by one, little by little, for you and me, particularly on this side of the resurrection, peeling back the levels of blindness. Peeling black that peeling back that which keeps us from seeing the glory of Christ. Incarnate God, living deity, walking among us, dwelling among us, tabernacling among us to show us grace and truth, as John has told us in chapter 1. It's amazing to see what he's done. Raise up, Tear down this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. You must be born again. How can a man enter his mother's womb again? I'll give you living water, but you don't have a bucket. I have food for you to eat. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And who brought you something? I mean, the, the blindness there of each of these encounters is telling and amazing. And you and I should think about that. This morning, as we think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples and saying to those who will come out from Samaria, we, we need to think about what is it that is different, that gives light and gives sight when we have been blinded. The, the narrative is quite straightforward and quite simple as he's been talking to the woman, as he's been talking to her about worship, and, and as she has tried to, dis, to deflect that, under, that, that discussion or discussion about her sin, tried to deflect it. But yet Jesus keeps bringing it back to some very important things. Now, there's no clear indication here explicitly that this woman is converted. There are implications. There are some subtle things there taking place that give us the idea that she's beginning to understand who he is. She starts out by saying, after he says, you're telling the truth, you don't have a husband now, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband she looks at him and she, she makes that great understatement, understatement. Sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Really? But you notice she doesn't say, I perceive you're the prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. And as he begins to deal with her more and she goes back into the city, and as she's moved back to the city, walked back, she left her water pots behind. I think there's some symbolism there. You remember the water pots of the first miracle at Cana where he turned the water into wine. Those water pots were ceremonial. Those water pots dealt with the old law, pictured the old law. These water pots just represent emptiness and barrenness, a need for more to life than it's gotten. This woman has sought meaning to life in all the wrong places. She has sought it in relationships, and she was the woman in town with a reputation. And she left those empty water pots that just had physical water, normal water behind, and she went into the city, and on her way, you know she must have been pondering that. How did this man, who I've never met before, who is a Jew from down in, in Jerusalem, certainly not from here in Samaria, doesn't know the, the geopolitics of this area, doesn't know my reputation in this city, how did he know what I've encountered? Surely he's a prophet. He has special knowledge from God. There's no doubt about that. But as she moves back in, when she talks to these men, she says, listen, I met someone down at Jacob's well, and he has told me everything about my life. Now, that's a little bit of hyperbole. He didn't tell her everything, but he told her what was important. 
He pointed to her sin in a very loving and a very caring and a very compassionate way, but he showed her that in her life there was a rebellion against God, that she was looking for spiritual reality in physical relationships that will never, ever satisfy. And as she's walking and thinking about this back into the city, when she says to the, those men of the city, she says, listen, this man's told me everything about my life. He's, he, he, you know, he's told me all about my sin. He's told me everything about me. And basically she says, could this perhaps be the Christ? Could this perhaps be the one who has been promised? He told me everything. I want you to know what he has said. Somewhere between the well and the city, she began to realize that what Jesus said to her when he looked at her square in the eyes before she left to go back, the one who stands before you is he. The one who stands in this place, I who speak to you am he. I am. I am the one who knows all things. I am the one who established worship. I am the one to whom comes to bring knowledge and life and eternal life. I mean, somewhere between the well and the city, she begins to ponder what he said and begins to, I think, believe that what he said was true. And then, he sa- then she says to the men, listen, you just need to go out and hear him. And so they did. They all went out and they, they, they gathered around him. And, and John doesn't go into detail about what Jesus taught there but he does, he does say that they, he stayed two more days with them. You know, I find it amazing that, that this woman became one of the very first evangelists, if you will. One of the very first witnesses to the truth of the reality of Christ being the Christ, the Messiah. She became one of the first ones to, to share the good news, to go back into the city and say, here is some good news. She could have given them news. She could have said, there's a guy down there who's thirsty and got 12 men following along with him, and, and he's a Jew, and he talked to me, who, who I'm a woman, and I'm a woman of ill repute nonetheless, and he talked to me. That would have been news. You know, that, newsworthy. This Jewish man was not affected by, uh, by sexual stereotypes and by the, the taboos of that day. He was different. That would have been news. But she didn't go back with just news that there's a man down there with 12 people following after him who dared talk to me and dared share some things with me. He, she said, listen, there's a man there who has told me everything. Could this be the Christ? She brought to them not news but good news. We live in a day when, quite honestly, people don't care to have people sharing the gospel with them for the most part. We, we find that out. You know, and, and some will even say, I, I've had people say to me, you know, you have no right to try to convert me to your religion. Okay? You have, you have no right to try to say that Christianity is superior to any other religion, whatever it might be. Buddhism, uh, Islam, uh, atheism, whatever. You, you place yourself in a superior role if you say Christianity is true and all these others are not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. This woman, when she encountered Christ, became a witness, and I guarantee you from that encounter being told, you're, you're a loose woman, and you've been with five husbands, and now you're with a man who's not your husband, 
She didn't all of a sudden, after having her sin revealed by Christ and seeing that he was the Messiah, go back into town and say, you know, I'm superior to these guys who have been looking down on me. And I need to tell them that they need to get right so they can get up to my standard. That's not it at all. But something was driving her to go back and tell them that she had met the Christ. Something was driving her to go back and say, you know, I've met this man and you need to go and meet him too. You need to go and at least consider what he has to say. I'm also amazed that he didn't command her to go. There's no indication here that Jesus says, now, woman, my disciples are here. You go back in the city. Go and tell about me to those people. Go and bear witness of, my, of who I am. He didn't say that. She just went. It seems to me that the reason she went was because she was compelled by something that was not superiority. She was not thinking that all of a sudden because she had met this rabbi, this teacher, this prophet, this one who might be the Christ, All of a sudden, she had had this meeting, so she was superior. No, she was compelled to go. The Apostle Paul says, we are compelled by the love of Christ to go. We are compelled not because we are superior, not even because of a command necessarily, although a command is later given by Jesus, but we are compelled because we have experienced the love of Christ. We have experienced the grace of Christ. We know the reality of His touching us by His truth and by His grace, and we are compelled to go. And this woman seems to have been compelled to go back because of the love of Christ. I think she's also compelled by truth. I mean, she saw that He spoke truth, even into her own life, even into things that that she was not willing to, to acknowledge necessarily as being sin, as being a struggle in her life, but she spoke it, and she He opened her eyes to see that. And so she was compelled by truth, and she was compelled by by Christ's love to go and just share with those what she had seen, what had happened in her life. She said, listen, let me tell you about this man. She went back in the city and said, let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you what he has told me. He told me everything about my life. Is this, this is not the Christ is it? You see, I'm convinced that we have made evangelism, we have made witnessing, we have made taking the good news to somebody really, really complicated when it really ought not be. Oh, we've, we've drawn it down to programs, we've made study courses about it and we've we've said man you got to get this training you got to know how have all the answers you got to be able to to share all that you can get all the all the truth you can muster up and you got to go through these 12 weeks or 15 weeks or whatever it is you got to be able to go and, and be prepared and then you can go it's become really complicated this woman didn't have a evangelism explosion course This woman didn't even have a two ways to live track. This this woman didn't have a four spiritual laws. This woman just had encountered Christ. This woman had come into an exposing encounter with Christ. And it exposed who she is and what she is. And it exposed her deepest needs. 
and she recognized that this is the one, talking about this living water, this is the one who can give to me that which I cannot find in any other place. I think we live in a world that is longing for deep spiritual truth. Now, they don't know it. And they may try to find it in a, in a bottle of alcohol. They may try to find it in crystal meth. They may try to find it in illicit sexual relationships. I, I don't know I, 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 they, any number of places. They may even just try to find it in church, in being religious. We're always looking for deep spiritual truth, but many times we fail to see that that deep spiritual truth is found only at one place and in one person, and that's all. This woman encountered the source of truth. Jesus spoke later in this book. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's standing here debating worship with this, with this Samaritan woman, her wanting to say, well, where is it, in this mountain or is it down in Jerusalem we're supposed to worship? She's wanting to get into this theological debate. And he says, listen, it doesn't matter. I'm the one to whom brings you the understanding of true worship. The one who is the Messiah is standing right here before you. The one that has been promised by Abraham and by Moses and by all the prophets. I'm standing right here and I'm going to tell you what the truth is and I'm going to encounter you with the truth of your life and the truth of God's love and the truth of God's forgiveness. I'm going to show you what it's all about. Don't debate about worship. You know, we live in a day that Worship can become a real sticky wicket. I heard a British friend say that one time. That's not an Alabamian phrase, okay? Worship's become a real uh, problematic thing for a lot of people. A lot of people don't know what worship is. We've talked about that for four weeks. A lot of people think worship is just coming together and singing some hymns and maybe a few songs and hearing a sermon and saying a few prayers and going out and, and that's it. They don't understand that worship is far deeper than that. Worship is an encounter with the living God. Worship is coming in here and divesting yourself and putting aside everything that's going on out there and saying, for this time, I want to just focus with my spiritual family, with the corporate body of Christ. I just want to focus on Him. I want to to glory in Him for this hour, hour and a half, whatever it is. And I just want to see Him in all His glory. I don't want to find... I don't want to find meaning in sex or drugs or alcohol or even religion. I want to find meaning in an encounter with Christ. And when that happens, you're going to go forth from that encounter and you're not going to have to have a training session. You're not going to have to have a, a track to take with you. You're going to go and you're just going to say, listen, I've got some good news. Let me tell you what has happened. Let me tell you this one that I have met, Christ. Could he be the Christ? Is he the Christ? Is he truth? I know what you're going to meet with. You're going to meet with some people. You're going to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. It's okay. You're going to have all sorts of fun with that with just a few simple questions. But, but you're going to encounter people and say, wait, who are you to tell me that my lifestyle or my religion or what I, who are you to say that, that that's wrong? Are you being superior to me? No, I'm not being, I'm just telling you what happened to me because I care about you. I love you. And the love of Christ is compelling me. The love of Christ is driving me. It's not a, it's, it's not a superiority thing. It's 
the thing that I just know, the joy that I have found in the truth of Christ, and I want you to know that joy. I want you to share in that joy. I want you to experience that joy because I care about you. And the love of Christ drives me. It's like we'll get to in a year or two over the end of this book when Jesus is down by the the lake and and after his resurrection, he comes to his disciples. And uh, you know the story, we've talked about it before. And uh, Peter and the disciples gather around. They have breakfast together. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Then go feed my sheep. Strange statement. A minute or so later, Jesus says, Peter, do you you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, then go feed my sheep. And a third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything about me. You know that I love you. And go tend my lambs. It's an amazing thing in that story. Not one single time does Jesus say to Peter, Peter, how you like sheep? Peter, do you love sheep? Are you just driven to get up in the morning and just go after sheep? No. And he's talking spiritually, metaphorically there, of course, about his people. But he didn't even ask ask Peter, Peter, do you love those whom I will call to myself? Do you love those who will be my sheep of my pasture, whom I will be their great shepherd? Do you love sheep, Peter? Never ask him that one single time. He said, Peter, do you love me? And, And see, the truth of the matter is, we love Christ. If we've had an encounter with the living Christ, it's not a matter of saying, oh, man, as soon as I can get training, I want to be a witness. As soon as I can muster up enough courage, I want to to really get in that training, and, and you tell me how to do it, and I'll do it by rote memory. It's not that at all. It's when you have come to understand who he is, then you go. You just share good news. It's not a matter of superiority. It's not a matter of looking down on anybody. It's a matter of showing love and compassion and concern that they might see that and know the truth also. I've uh, noticed through years that in reading about different medical things that, that sometimes something will be on the market and somebody will be giving a medicine and uh, they'll be seeing some side effects, and some other doctors in another place will do a little research on it and discover that, that the medicine isn't exactly what's good. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they discover the medicine doing more harm than it is good. Now, if, if these men who have discovered that were to say, well, you know, hmm, it's gonna really, people are going to think I'm superior if I publish my findings on this medical, in this medical journal, they're going to They're going to think I'm looking down on those who have been prescribing the old drug. And yeah, it's kind of a poison to a lot of people, but but, but that's okay. I don't don't want want them to feel bad about me by showing what that really is. That would be criminal. No, you want the publishers or the discoverers of, of that bad drug and a better drug or just the bad drug, you want them to take what they've discovered and publish it and say, this is good news. Stop what you're doing because it's hurting you. 
Nobody gets mad at those doctors. Your neighbor's house is on fire tomorrow morning. And you wake up and see it on fire and they're still asleep and, and you say, I've got to get them out of there. And you run up to the door and start beating on the door. They're not going to come to the door and say, would you go away? You're, you're waking me up out of my sleep. And I say, thank you. I, I could have died in this fire. I, I could have perished in this fire. And yet you cared enough. You were compelled enough to come and wake me up. Doctors share good news. You share some bad news, but you're sharing some good news that they can get out if they'll hurry. It's the same way with the gospel. When this woman goes to these men in this town, she's just simply saying, listen, there's something that I have seen. There's someone that I have talked to, and he has, he has revealed to me things that he should not have known. I dare say she would have said things that some of you don't even know. But he's told me, and I've seen that. Could this be the Christ? This is not the Christ, is it? The men come out, mainly because of what she said. I, they didn't become believers. They didn't become Christians because of what she said. Because of what she said, they pursued it. They said, well, we'll go see for ourselves. And they went out, and they heard him, and he stayed two days. And again, we don't know what he said in those two days, but he taught them, he instructed them, he, he preached to them, if you will. And during those two days, it comes to the end of this thing, and he says, listen, we have come to see all the things that he did. It's not because of what you said, woman, that we believe, but it's because we've seen these things that he did. We've heard these things ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now Later, John's going to show us that that's the Holy Spirit at work. That's the Holy Spirit opening eyes and opening hearts. That's the Holy Spirit giving spiritual understanding where before there was only physical understanding. And it might be that friend that you care about, that friend that you you really want to tell about Christ, but you're, you're just kind of afraid to because you don't think you think you're better than them. You don't want them to think, you know, they, they, they would think that you're, you're trying to push something on them or, as some say, shove, the, shove religion down their throat. It's not that at all. I just want to say, listen, I've encountered this one who says he is the Son of God. I've encountered this one who says he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man comes to the Father but through Him. I've encountered this one who has shown me my own life, things that you don't know about, things that I've kept well hidden, but His Holy Spirit has enlightened me, and I have trusted Him, and He has given me joy. See, joy comes out of truth. Joy comes out of Christ. He has given me joy. I have come to believe that He is the truth. Now, that's strange words to our generation. Our generation says there is no truth. Our generation says, listen, everything's relative. What's true for you may not be true for me, and what's my truth is not your truth. Everything's relative truth. And, of course, the thing you always want to ask them is, oh, is that absolutely true? That everything's relatively true? Self-contradictory. But the point is this. 
you go with the truth. And they may say, I don't believe in truth. You say, well, let me tell you about the truth. And let me tell you how the truth has impacted my life. And let me tell you the joy that has come out of this. Jesus says to those disciples, and to be quite honest, I've gotten in next week's sermon a little bit already. But Jesus said to those disciples, I've got food to eat that you don't know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. That's what consumes me. That's what I hunger for. That's what I want more than anything in my life. And at the end of his life, just before the cross, he'll pray in John 17, and he'll say, Father, you have sent me into the world, and I have accomplished all that you sent me to do. Every bit of it. And that's because his meat, his food, his desire, his passion, his drive is to to do the will of him who sent me. When's the last time you thought about what is is the will of the one who called me to himself, gave me eternal life, and then sent me into the world? What is his will? Oh, Oh, you might have prayed about if you're a young person, what is... What is his will about where I'll go to college? Or what is his will about the person I'll marry? Or maybe you're, you've prayed, what is his will about my job? No, I'm not talking about that. Those are very specific. And those are very subjective in a lot of ways. I'm not just, what is his will? Paul said, this is the will of the Father, that you rejoice always and pray without ceasing. There's one clue. That you're always showing joy, that you're always rejoicing in Him, that you're always understanding His truth as being the grounds of your joy. It's not the the circumstances of life. It's not the tough things of life that we're all going to go through at one time or another. But it's realizing that my joy is not determined by what circumstances are. My joy is founded, grounded, rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of His providence. The truth that he's in control. The truth that nothing will enter my life, nothing will touch me that doesn't first pass through him and gain his permission to enter my life. He is caring for me, watching over me that much. He loves me that much. What is his will? Is your food, is your hunger, is your passion to do the will of he? Who sent you? As I said, with this woman, she was compelled by the love of Christ alone. There was no command. We have the command now. As you go into the world, make disciples. As you go into the world, share the gospel. All those things are are, are factually given, objective truth, objective commands on this side of the resurrection, this side of the crucifixion. But, But this woman's just compelled. She had met Christ, and she couldn't be stopped. What's compelling you? What's driving your life? What do you hunger for? A new car? A bigger house? More money in the bank? More people to like me? 
Are you hunger to do the will of He who sent you? Do you hunger to know Christ more? Do you hunger to worship Him more in spirit and truth, to, to come into His presence and know that covenant presence with Him and worshiping Him and hearing Him, hearing His Word and acting on that Word? Do you hunger to be doers of the Word, not hearers only, as James said? Do you hunger to be about your father's business? Do you, do you hunger to realize, hey, I, I was an outsider and I was adopted into the family and I've been given a royal family name and I want to tell everybody about the goodness and the truth and the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. What's your food? What do you hunger for? This woman and these Samaritan men really came to recognize and realize that Jesus is the glorious Son of God, the Savior of the world, whose food it is to accomplish His purpose, God's purpose, the Father's purpose. That's all He wanted to do. And His purpose was to give eternal life, to give bread that led to eternal life. Have you ever noticed the usage of bread? Todd read a passage out of the Synoptic Gospels that talked about the feeding of the 5,000, the bread. Other places it talks about the bread. In the Lord's Supper, he takes the bread, so this is my body. It's all about eating and drinking, hungering and thirsting after righteousness for his namesake. What are you hungry for? Hungry to know him better? Are you hungry to, to know him better that you might better reflect his truth, reflect his grace, reflect his glory where you work, where you go to school, where you live, in your neighborhood? Do you hunger to be able to, to reflect him in such a way that you'll be like this woman and say, Listen, I just know this. I've met him. This is what he said. He said he is truth. Would you just go out and examine it? And they did. And they believed. What's your food? What do you hunger for? Are you waiting until you're well trained and know all the Bible and know all the theological intricacies of, of all the great doctrines of the faith? Then you'll never be, you'll never be a very effective good news giver? Or are you compelled by the fact that you've had to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? What's your food? What are you hungry for? Where are you seeking the real meaning to life? You're the only one who can answer that. But I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit of God to open your eyes to see if it's not Him and to show you His glory in your life in a new and specific and powerful way. Let's pray together.
Father, it is our desire to worship you and know you and walk in your truth. To walk in your truth in a world that doesn't even believe that truth exists. Father, give us a compulsion of your love to go forth from this place. Just to bring good news to people that the death of sin has been overcome by you. That the wrath of God has been propitiated by you, satisfied by you on the cross. That there is life in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for men and women and young people who are sitting here this morning who don't know you. Father, I ask you to do a work in their life that only you can do. I can't beg them to come. I can't trick them into coming. Oh, I could. But that's not life. That's just psychology. I ask you to give them spiritual life, Lord. And that they might respond in obedience and desire to give that first testimony of baptism. Father, speak into their hearts. Pray for others, Lord, that would lean to be a part of this church family. Lord, show them your will to use them here in this place for your glory. Father, you do your work in your way as we wait upon you. We pray in Jesus' name.